they haven't converted yet. That's why they're not called Jewish. I mean, they've they gone all in and you know, gone through circumcision, which would be a little bit of a barrier to conversion. But you know, you got to give them credit. These are people from a culture that was very religious, and yet you've got to assume that they found nothing in the polytheistic mythologies of their Greek gods. As Jews, Poseidon, Athena, Apollo, Ares, Aphrodite, and, and these ridiculous gods who were full of faults and foolishness. They appreciated worshiping this one true God. And probably had grown tired of the meaningless philosophy of the Greeks. Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and the Epicureans and the Stoics and cynicism. There was nothing but human reasoning and speculating and rationalization, but in Judaism, they found this beautiful faith that elevated them, that accepted ethical behavior of them because they're created in the image of this one true God. And not that a bunch of gods that have been created in the image of man, and the reason that that power, who was, what did they do? But now in Judaism, they were discovering even more as they became aware of this messianic prophet. They wanted to know more about Jesus, and so they approached one of the disciples, named Philip, because his name was Greek. So they probably figured, you know, more well, here's our end. We're a fellow Greek guy. So they asked her, we wish to see Jesus. Love that. Years ago, I remember hearing how preachers would sometimes have that thing, you know, like a little plaque on the pulpit next to the note to be reminded that's why people were there. We, we want to see Jesus. People still want to see Jesus today. The world is still intrigued by Jesus. They revere him, but they misunderstand him. So, when those Greeks are asking to see Jesus, they don't just look him with their eyes, but they want to interview him. They want to get to know him. So they probably can't get to him at the time, not only because of Saul, but they, they're, they're not Jewish, so they're in part of the courts of the Gentiles, this open intersection of the temple area where they were only allowed to go. And they somehow can't get to Jesus, so they approach Philip. Like, will you be our connecting link to Jesus? And that's exactly it. You and I are in our culture. We are there connecting link to Jesus. I mean, people can approach us because you know, we're like them. We speak the language. We share the same kind of culture and customs. Now, missionaries work very hard to try to learn the language and customs and culture of other people so that they can go all the way over and share the good news with them. And yet, you know, it's so important, it's so needed, but it's it's difficult, right? It takes time for those people to accept missionaries in, to learn to uh, relate to them and to trust them. But for you and I, uh, right now, we are the connecting link to the people around us. They can approach us to be introduced to Jesus. But you know, there, there are people all around us who are just as tired of the meaninglessness of human philosophy, the shift of the rituals and rules and superstitions of today's religion. They, they know there's got to be something more. They want to see Jesus. 
Jesus is not able to verbalize that. I know we can get pretty down and negative about the state of society. Look around, there. nobody is seeking God anymore. Nobody cares about Jesus. Nobody wants to go to church anymore. And we can kind of give up on it. But don't. Because there are still people who want to see Jesus. They may ask you, they may not, they may not even be aware that you're somebody that they can't ask. But once they know that you're a disciple, then when they are ready to ask, then you can be their companion. You can introduce them. And we can't show them Jesus physically, but we show Jesus through who we are. You may be the only Jesus some people get to see. So if you're representing him well, they're going to be drawn to him. And you never know whom God may be drawn. You never know who's going to show up because of what's going on in their life and say, hey, can you tell me about this faith in you? Can you help them find Jesus? So Philip tells another disciple, Andrew, who happens to have a Jewish name as well, and they go and find Jesus, and that's when Jesus says, my hour to be glorified has come. Because everything has been leading up to this. He knows in just a couple days, he started crucifying. But then he'll rise. Why doesn't he have to die? People still wonder that today. Well, what's the whole point of Jesus dying? Well, he points out, you, you see the principle in the plant world. People understand the principle that death comes into life. Life comes through death. When you plant a seed in the ground, when you bury it in the ground, it produces life. More seeds. So the point is, Jesus is going to die for us so that we can have life. Unless he dies, there can be no life for us. Because we're already dead in our sins. We've already been cut off from the source of life. And so, uh, because of our disbelief and our disbelief, and our disobedience, there is no hope for us unless somebody dies. Either you die for your sins or Jesus dies for your sins. Because the wages of your sin is death. They've got to be paid. So the good news is Jesus comes and pays your penalty so that you can be forgiven and you can bury your bury the old person you were in the waters of baptism and you rise up with him the new and forever life with God. None of us can live unless Jesus first died. So multiple millions of people are going to live forever because of Jesus' death. And if you have a loved one who has died in Christ, the body is planted instead of life. So he points out that anybody who wants to hang on to his life, life in this world, is going to lose it. Because they're already dead. Unless you have your life in you, apart from Christ, there is no life. Now, you're going to continue to exist as you physically die, but I wouldn't call it quality of life. It's going to be a miserable existence cut off from God. So, you don't want to hang on to that kind of life. You want real life, abundant life, full life, eternal life. Jesus even phrases it in terms of loving and hating your own life. Because if you hate your life in this world, if you understand that this, this life is not real life, then you're going to trade it in for real life. You're going to die to yourself, die to your past, die to your sins. Why? So that Christ can live in you. It's no longer as you live, 
for Christ to work in you. And if you love your life in this world, well, that's all you're going to get. That's the only life you'll ever really experience. Because after you die physically, you're going to exist in a horrific existence of Christ himself. So the paradox is, when you look at the cross, which is an instrument of death, and it's kind of odd, right? People want to cross that up with it. Greeks ever got to actually 
see Jesus interview him, but they to hear the voice of God from heaven. But not everybody perceived it as God's voice. Some thought it was an angel, which I guess you could understand why they think that. Others, though, thought it sounded like thunder. Which is kind of weird to think of confusing God's voice with weather, but it must have just boomed from the sky. Right? So, that's how God's voice is described in later John writes the book of Revelation. In this vision in chapter 14, I heard a voice in heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of what? Loud thunder. How do you feel when you hear loud, booming thunder? Does it shake you? Does it scare you? If you ever go on Facebook, just like everyone's friends, I mean, every week, there is somebody posting, did you hear that boom? Right? Like, did anybody else hear that big boom? And then everybody starts commenting their conjecture. Well, it could have been a transformer blowing or a crash or fireworks. And inevitably, somebody puts something about it. It's not so bad. But, but nobody really knows what they heard. Did I hear something? I'm not so sure. What was that sound? Did I really hear that? And I think that's what's going on here. I wouldn't accept that. I'm not even sure what I heard. Well, I saw Paul was on the way to Damascus with some other guys, and the bright light shines from heaven, knocks them to the ground, and they all hear a voice. Saul hears Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What the other guys hear? They, they didn't understand the voice. For me, it's like, unless you're listening, unless you're looking, you're not really going to hear it. So, I think it's maybe like these other amazing circumstances where people are always looking for some sort of naturalistic explanation, like a healing. Like, well, this sounds pretty well to God. We're just going to explain that away naturally. Or they look around at creation. They go, oh, yeah, this is all this happened. I mean, you can explain all this through impersonal evolution. Right. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. Because look, all you got to do is look and you yeah, it's kind of good here. It's so clear, but not everybody gets it or wants to get it. But then maybe they don't see it or hear it unless that's what they're looking for. So this voice is for the benefit of others. Jesus didn't need it. He was to reassure that probably mostly the disciples because a couple days he's going to be arrested. He's going to be put to death. He's going to be in the tomb for a while. And they needed to keep on believing. So this is going to help them. So everybody gets to hear this, but it's not enough. Not everybody believes. No matter how much evidence that is, if God would only speak to me, well, he did, and he still didn't listen. Still didn't believe. So Jesus refers to the judgment that's going to come now, and the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. So that means the cross is salvation, but it's also judgment, the consequence of rejecting him. And when Satan looks at the cross, he thought he saw a victory. But actually, it was his defeat. Because Satan is the ruler of this present fallen world. Because the whole world system is under his sway as people follow his way. And he's the prince of this present darkness. He is the small deep God of this age. And anybody who follows him in his rebellion against God, even unknowingly, against capital D God, I've been experiencing the same judgment and condemnation. But his rule 
is limited, it's temporary, and even though Satan is permitted to do a great deal of damage, he's still a defeated enemy. So Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he's referring to being lifted up on the cross. And that's going to draw all kinds of different people to himself. Not just Jewish, but Greeks and Egyptians and Ethiopians and Indians and Arabians and Chinese and Russians and Spanish and British and Americans. That's why he came to die for all people so that those who put their trust in him would be drawn to him in faith. Jesus is high and lifted up and he's exalted because of who he is and what he's done. So when we look at that cross, as the old hymn puts it, it was the emblem of suffering and pain. Right? They would put people on crosses back then to warn people not to do what they did. It was public humiliation. But it has become an emblem of life and glorification for us. So the crowd is confused about all this. How can the Christ die? Didn't the Old Testament scriptures promise his perpetual existence? No, they're not wrong. It did. The Old Testament says that the Messiah would remain forever. So Isaiah prophesied in chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. So see right there, the Messiah is going to live forever. But at the same time, as the Apostle in chapter 53, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. The Messiah is going to be killed by oppression and judgment. He's taken away. He's cut off from the land of the living. They made his grave with the wicked. How is that possible? Both he's going to live forever and he's going to die. Well, of course, they didn't understand the resurrection. That hasn't happened yet. So while they're trying to make sense of all that, trying to put all the puzzle pieces together, Jesus presses the urgency of listening to him. He says, you're only going to have the light among you for a little longer. So stay in the light so the darkness doesn't overtake you. That's the whole world. In this dark world, People are groping around, searching for some truth. Though they're grasping in the dark, grabbing onto a little bit of you know, philosophy and a little bit of religion, and they're trying to make sense of it all. When the whole time Jesus is shining the light into the darkness, and if they would only take a simple step into the light, they could leave the darkness behind. What they can do. So he withdraws again. He's done with his public interaction. Again, he's going to stick to God's timetable. He's going to be put to death at the Passover. And he leaves people with an option, right? Your decision. Believe or reject. Some believe, some reject. Even though he's given them plenty of reasons to believe, especially the miracle. But look, God doesn't force you to believe. He draws you. He gives you a choice, and yet there are those who are unwilling. They remain in their stubborn defiance of disbelief. 
In fact, that was described hundreds of years ago again by the prophet Isaiah. When he was talking about, they couldn't believe because God hardened their eyes and closed their eyes. And he said, wait, 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 wait a minute. I thought you just said we all have a choice. That sounds like nobody's got a choice. No, what Isaiah is saying is descriptive, not prescriptive. He's just telling them this is the way it's going to be because people will harden their hearts. They will refuse to believe. See, Isaiah is not promoting some kind of prominent doctrine of predestination that God chooses some people to be saved, but he chooses other people to be condemned, and they have no choice in the matter because there's no free will. God does it all. No? What we need to understand is God has foreknowledge. He knows he's going to respond, and he's not going to respond, but that foreknowledge doesn't cancel out our free will. It just tells what's going to happen. And God's foreknowledge doesn't force fulfillment. It just accurately describes it all the time. So Isaiah prophesies about Christ is going to be rejected. He's going to die. So those who reject Christ carry culpability for their own choice. They can't blame God or anybody else. So it's not a matter of, I can't believe I don't want to believe. I choose not to believe. So it's those who are seeking to disbelieve. Not seeking God purposely. Intentionally closing their own eyes and hardening their own heart. You harden your own heart. But at some point, God may just give you over to that and harden your heart. And if you look at the book of Romans, that God gives people up their disbelief. You look at Pharaoh, way back to the time of Moses, wouldn't let the Israelites go because God hardened his heart. Some people will see, you don't have a choice, God does it all. He hardens heart. Well, wait a minute. Remember, Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. And after a long while, then God hardened his heart. And it had nothing to do with salvation. This was about a specific purpose, person for a specific purpose. So when we're talking about choosing some and not choosing others, even when we're talking about the Jewish nation in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, Providence will point there and say, see, God chose some and he chooses others not to, and God does it all and he has no free will. No, no, no. That chapter has nothing to do with salvation. That's all about God choosing somebody or some group for a role, for a purpose, not for salvation. It doesn't mean that people can't receive Christ can't believe in God. Back in Isaiah's day, when he prophesied, there were people who chose God and repented to believe. In Jesus' day, there were people who chose to believe in their death. And today, there are people who choose to believe in their death. You know, many do not. No one is going to have an excuse before God. On judgment day, you can't stand there and say, God, you can't condemn me. I have nothing to do with this. This is all on you, buddy. You're the one that chose me to be condemned. I didn't have a say so. You didn't give me a chance. No, I don't think so. I You know, God wants all people to be saved. He doesn't choose some people to be saved and some to be condemned. He focuses on your decision, on the condition of your heart. And as the old saying goes, the same son that melts the last part in prayer. Jesus is the son shining the light. And soft hearts melt and hard hearts. Pardon. So those who 
chose to believe in Christ. Many of them kept it a secret. And we always tend to think of the Jewish religious scholars and leaders always rejecting Christ. But that's not true. Some believe. And here at the end, many, many believe. But they kept it silent because they feared the other authorities who did not believe and they would take them out of the synagogue. Why? Because they wanted the approval of men more than the approval of God. And that's what hurts our witness so much. Is that fear of man hinders our witness. Our desire to sit in destroys our testimony. Because, you know, not that long ago in society, it was, it was thought a good thing, even a respectable thing, to be a Christian. To be somebody who reads the Bible and goes to church. It was great. But that's not our society anymore. And you know the danger if you fly your Jesus flag out in public. You know what's going to happen to you. What people are going to say about you. How your family will treat you. What's going to happen at your workplace. No, no, no. You've got to keep that under wraps. So you can come out and probably say you're a Christian. You know, you compromise with the world and continue to embrace the world's values. That's fine. You call yourself whatever. As long as you still act like one of us. And once you become a serious Christian, who lives by scriptures and they're in trouble. What are others going to think of you? So, what do you care about more? What others think of you or what God thinks of you? Care about what other people think of you? Well, there's going to be a price to pay for that. That's fine. Now, the final thing Jesus said whoever believes in me, believes in God. Whoever sees me, sees God. And if you don't keep my word, you're going to be judged by God. Because what I'm saying, God told me to say. And I didn't come to judge the world, I came to save the world, but if you reject what I say, then there's a judgment day coming for you. And you say, well, I just, I, I, I'm not possibly rejecting Jesus. I'm just kind of, you know, yeah, I'm indifferent. Huh? Not come. So the offer is made to whoever. Over and over, Jesus says, whoever, whoever, whoever. That's you. You're a whoever. So the ball's in your court. You've got free will. You make the choice. The first time you came was for the purpose of saving. But the clock is ticking. Right now, it's a time of decision. So how much time you got, we don't know. Because you're going to come back a second time, and it will be for judgment. That will be a, not only a purpose, but that will be the consequence of rejecting them. It's not making a decision for you. If you cannot make a decision, you can make a decision. Now, for us in Christ, will come to complete our salvation, but for those outside of it will be for condemnation. Which is why the gospel is such good news. Before there's a good news, there has to be bad news. If you don't really understand and appreciate the bad news, you're not going to embrace the good news. Until you understand the desperate situation you're in because you deserve death and hell, why would you accept the good news? It's not that good. But now that I know, Ultimately, Jesus is the answer. Those of us in Christ, we've already passed through judgment. We've already died with Christ. We're already alive with Christ. It's not going to be that you yet. While you have the light, while you still have the time, today is the day of salvation. Next week, John takes us into the upper room in chapter 13, where the king turns into a servant and walks his feet. So be here for that. Bring somebody with you.
But if you have that made the decision to follow Christ, it's the most important thing you've heard today. You take your response. Three things to do for the things you receive. We're told to believe in Jesus and God's Son, receive him as your Savior. Repent of your sins, turn away from them, and be baptized into Christ. I'm right here today on the spot. First service, there was a young lady who came here on her birthday. I'm going to go to church on her birthday. Fifteen years old. I'm going to go to church. Didn't come here expecting to be baptized. That's something you have to schedule. You have to wait for special baptism on Sunday, right? No, it's just right here. Right here. That's what you do. Thank you. 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 Email us, text us. Come to the top of the next email. Call the music Talk to one of my friends. We can help you with that decision. Answer questions. Stay with you. Just come back next week. But you know, you never know. This may be our final week. What are the strategies and strategies and questions at the time to remember that? If you're not accepting the answer, you can just find it on the flat or text or email. But if you eat the bread and drink the cup, it reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. It reminds us of what happened to Christ. And how it means everything to us. That's what gives us life. That's what gives us hope. Thank you.